Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Good to see you. You too. Happy Holy Week leading up to Easter. I know it's one of those busy, busy religious weeks. <laughs> it is indeed. We are recording. This is Good Friday, actually. Um, and we're going to talk about the Easter story. We are. And we're going to start with the whole entering of Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and go all the way to Easter something like we did last week, but but we're going to try and do a little more theological reflection this week. So let's start. We'll start with, with Palm Sunday. So I wasn't raised Catholic, but I actually became Catholic later. And when I became Catholic later, I, I was so excited about Palm Sunday. There's something about like having palms. I don't know that I fully knew the story, but I liked like <laughs> waving palms. And, but that Sunday was such a celebration. It felt like there was a party because we're reenacting this story, which was that Jesus is entering the city, right? He's been sort of moving through. He's this traveling teacher. People are gathering around him. They're completely inspired by his story and his commitment to service and healing and the poor and the marginalized. He's pulling more and more people in. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem, there's a party, they're singing, they're dancing. They have finally arrived in the city. And they're, they come in this idea of like palms and just the, the, the celebration of it all. I love that. It feels so completely inspiring. And I, I know that there have been times in my life when I have been that inspired inspired by somebody and I want to sing and I want to dance and I want to gather all the people around me and just participate in something that feels really beautiful and exciting. Yeah, it is an interesting um, start to the week that we know leads to his death, right? So there's an interesting, I think it's also interesting to think about the emotional arc of the week, if you will, right? Because how you experience this week emotionally also says a lot about how you experience this week theologically, right? So it's joyous that he comes to the city wherein he will be betrayed and will be like killed, right? But it's joyous because of what happens then on Easter Sunday, right? If, if that is the theology that you buy into. Um, so he arrives on Sunday and then has a pretty packed week. He does. Um, Monday is my husband's very favorite story. <laughs> he, um, he sees the money changers in the temple, which is its own like standalone theology, right? You could almost just take this single story of the money changers and create, and we have created this whole theology just around that story. The idea of 
where where is money exchanged? What role does money play? And in what way, right? So his issue, I know people love to talk about that, you know, that the economy doesn't belong in the temple, that religion and money don't belong together. That wasn't really his issue. His issue was was the dishonesty, was that the temple had really fallen and had become a marketplace rather than um, a, a place where people were safe and protected. And that the people who were there were dishonest and he, he couldn't take it. And what my husband loves about it is that this is where Jesus loses his temper. It's like the, the time where you really see him being angry. When we talk about Jesus as being fully human as well as fully divine, but this is where you see it, where the people writing the story weren't gonna pretend that this didn't happen, right? And he gets a knotted cord and whips people to get them the hell out of there. <laughs> He like hulks out a little bit, right? He gets really mad. <laughs> what I think is really interesting, right? Um, and we haven't talked a lot about this, but there's all these non-canonical gospels and stories of Jesus, right? And there are some that do this human work, right? Especially the infancy gospels. So there's, um, I'm not gonna remember which one it's in, right? But there's an infancy gospel where there's a story of Jesus as like a kid and he gets like pissed off at another kid and like, causes his death right like because with his magical powers right and and it's so it kind of is an exploration and there's and they threw out right they sort of got rid of or wouldn't allow into the canon some of these stories that gave folks a picture of who Jesus was between birth and holy week right because there's kind of like a pretty big gap from birth to like being 30 and doing his thing and so I think it's interesting this sort of attempt to deny the like real human child that existed in Jesus, right? And then the real human man. And you're right, here's the story where it like peeks out for this moment of like, he just couldn't contain himself, you know? And I think I, I agree with your husband. I like this one too. <laughs> well, so after his big day on Monday, he goes on Tuesday and now he's teaching. He's gathering the masses and people are listening and he's walking through town, healing people. It was a very busy Tuesday. And then he takes a rest on Wednesday because you have to have a day of rest and Sunday's gonna be busy. So he, take, he takes Wednesday off yeah. and then we kick into Thursday. And Thursday is where things get hot. Thursday is ostensibly the first night of Passover. And he's gonna have a Seder, a friend's Seder, rather than with family. And it's a little difficult for us to know who's there other than that it would seem his, the people he have sort of named as his closest friends who history, 12 of whom history later dubs apostles, none of whom were women, but in the room were a lot of women. I would suspect Jesus would have, if he had to name this is the inside group, there would have been a lot of women in that group, but the men who later rewrote this story, you know, de-elevated them. <laughs> so well, all those people, yeah. well, and without women, frankly, who was doing the cooking? That's all I'm saying. For real. <laughs> <laughs> so they all get together for Passover. And as part of the Passover meal, right, everyone breaks bread and 
and they drink it and he says this is my body i give it for you and they share in this matzah and they drink wine and he says this is this is my blood i give it for you i mean he is it, he is creating communion in as the story is told later in history he creates communion there but whether or not it actually happens it actually happens insofar as they do in fact break this bread and drink this wine in community in communion with each other and they do they are companions for each other they have been now for potentially as much as three years and and they have arrived where they wanted to be and they are sharing this holy meal together and it is you know until this it's been working out pretty well for Jesus but he knows the tension is really high he knows that there's um that he's definitely pissed off the Jews in power, right? I mean, the people who are used to being the ones who define the law and and tell the stories are, are not happy with him at all. And, and a whole lot of Romans are unclear about where like this whole power is shifting and they have, they've negotiated pretty well with the Jews, which isn't an easy thing to do, right? Romans really, it's Roman law to recognize the emperor as God. And the Jews won't do that. The Jews are monotheists and they're not adding another God to their list. And in their refusal, I mean, that's generally considered treason. So there's, there's a tension that's been negotiated. They have found a way to live together to allow the Jews not to worship the emperor without having to kill them all and at the same time the Jews have found a way to navigate in a system that's not set up for their benefit and then Jesus comes and really interrupts that and creates a new pull on power and it's a threat it's a threat to a lot of people and Jesus is not an idiot and he knows that this is not gonna he's, he can't really walk into the capital and just you know, claim power and, you know, like get rid of the, the money changers who were important in for both the Romans and the Jews. He can't behave the way he's been behaving without a consequence. So after dinner and everyone is going to sleep and he's afraid. And I love that. I love that moment. I love that he asks his friends to pray with him. I love that he prays by himself and he prays for this not to happen. He prays for a different path. He he asks God to please just let this let this go. <laughs> let this one go. Just to protect him, to help him to not have to suffer through this. And yet, <clears throat> before the night is over, he's arrested. Right. Betrayed by one of his buddies. Right. 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 I mean, this is very human. Yeah. Yeah, everything, it's interesting, right? Like everything about the lead up to this story would make for like sort of a good, you know, TV drama, right? Like friends betraying each other and, you know, knowing what has to happen, but not wanting it to. And that like agonizing moment of, of wishing that it wouldn't, but sort of like 
then grappling with and accepting your fate. Like there's just, it's very, very human in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, obviously you'll have to correct me here, but there's also like, God's not altogether that present in these, in this lead up, right? Like as a reference point, yes. Or like as an object to which they pray or devote or whatever, but like God's not doing anything in the story right now, right? It's just all the human players sort of making their way and trying to figure it out and doing the best they can. Um, and it's and being, also, oh, go ahead. And being very human. Yeah, yeah, right. No, but nobody so far in the story is like the picture of obedient devotion and faith, right? Like, which maybe tells us something about what actual faith looks like, right? That it isn't necessarily blind and unquestioning acceptance of all things, right? Um, and it's somewhere, it's somewhere between Thursday and Friday, right? That Peter's, Peter denies this like a handful of times. Yeah, I mean, well, first is Judas. I mean, the, the betrayal from Judas is fascinating to me because, because he and Judas seem like good friends. Right? They really, it feels like this is the person you can trust and yet, and yet he turns him in. And there are so many different ways of understanding that, right? Does he turn him in for the money? It doesn't seem that, <clears throat> but that's one idea. Does he turn him in because he really thinks you've gone off the rails, right? This isn't, this isn't really working. This isn't what we had said we were gonna do. I mean, how many times have, have any of us been betrayed by someone we thought was on the inside, but hadn't been saying what they were really thinking? And it seems like that's what happens to Judas. He's, he has all these doubts. He's not on the same page, but he doesn't want to tell anybody. And, and then what he does, you know, then he turns him in. And there are other stories too that say that Jesus asked him to turn him in, that there was no other way for this to play out. And Jesus, that Judas has the, the difficult task of being the one who appears to betray Jesus, when in fact, he's the one who's staying closest to the, the necessity of the story. So that's a really interesting, right, and this will start to pull us a little bit into theology, but we'll have to come back to the end of the story, but um, this, especially in the medieval period, and I think it's, is it Anselm who writes Cour Deus Homo, right, Anselm of Canterbury, the like, why does God become man, and there's this whole theological sort of explanation about the fall and so humans are like sunk in this place of sin and the only way out, the only person who can make restitution to God is God's self, right? That's the idea here. And so there is nothing that humanity can possibly do. Only God can make it good with God's self. And so God, sort of the person of Jesus as both God and human becomes the vehicle by which God makes restitution to God's self. But what that means is that for human salvation, human redemption, human transformation, what's necessary is the betrayal, is the crucifixion, is because those set up the resurrection. And without the resurrection, humanity can't be saved, right? So you sort of work backwards. And all of a sudden, if you don't have Judas betraying, you can't have salvation, right? So there's this interesting, it's always fascinating, the sort of the, the castigation of Judas is fascinating when in fact it's kind of like he just got stuck doing the shitty job that like had to be done if you if you buy this particular theological argument, the shitty job that had to be done, right? And and like 
in a way, he's a part of the instrument of salvation, right? Um, right, and that goes to the, I think we've talked about this once before, the, the low ascending Christology, the high descending Christology, right? If, if God has made this choice, has decided that this is what has to happen and is playing out this story for the salvation of all humanity, then Judas is, is not critical. Judas is a saint. Judas has done the really hard work. If it's a low ascending Christology, though, Judas has simply betrayed his friends. And this is how it plays. Yeah. And then he gets, Jesus gets betrayed again, right? With Peter. Yep. Three times. Three times. You're like, do you know him? He's like, no, never saw him before. Are you sure? Because I thought you were partying. No, I'm sure of it. Never saw him before. Really? Because we saw you together. No, I'm telling you, I don't know who that guy is, right? Three times. He's like, I'm believing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's Peter who he's like, I will, you know, you're, I'm going to build the church on you, right? Like, Peter's the rock. And even Peter's like, mm, I'm going to distance myself from this dude for a while, right? Like, it's, it is the, um, it, it makes me wonder about, and I'm sure somebody has said this and I've just never read it, right? But it makes me wonder about, <clears throat> the extent to which isolation is necessary in order to undertake that work, right? Like, is there some piece of all of those betrayals that are like, in order that he had to be loosed from the world, so to speak, right? Like that those, those ties had to be undone on some level for the purpose of then being able to be sacrificed in this way, right? Like, again, like it's not something I... It, this is an inter it's interesting to tell the story together, Peggy, right? Because like, I don't believe, right? Like I do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Like, yeah, I probably buy that there was a guy named Jesus and he taught and he did some stuff and people thought he was cool. And that was true of like a million other miracle makers in the early Roman period, right? Like miracle workers, wandering preachers were like a dime a dozen in Jesus's world, right? So yeah, I believe he existed. I believe he had some buddies. He probably got crucified, but like, I don't, I did all of the story that accrues around it and the notion of a bodily resurrection, like none of that, I don't feel that, right? Um, and so it's interesting to think about the story and its meaning in, in a sort of literary, what are the, what are the, um, what are the truths, right? In the sense that mythologies hold truths. What are the truths embedded in the, behaviors and in the words and the actions right um but it is true yeah I, I love the story I mean I love there are pieces of the theology that I I, I love but I actually love this story for its humanness and really for the whole experience of Lent and I, I I'm sorry that you use don't really do anything around Lent. I have some good friends right now who are um, not eating meat or cheese or drinking wine. Like there's a, um, they're Greek Orthodox, but they, there's something about the sacrifice of Lent that I think is very human and necessary and leading up to this. And then in some way culminating on Good Friday with this emotional, um, and it's sort of a shared communal 
emotional experience. And where I went to church, um, which is a barn in the woods in Connecticut, and on Good Friday, it was sort of now no communion, right? An hour and a half, mostly of music. And then everyone would really do a spectacular cross laid out on the barn floor. And and after the service, there was another hour and a half of music um, and the stations and people would, would go and kiss the feet of the cross. And it was so powerful. And just being in this space for three hours, people are just crying and really feeling it. There is something, um, cathartic and necessary in this very human way about having built into our societal experience a way to be sad and to mourn and and I think Good Friday really provides that for us when we move you know and really embody the story. Yeah so that's interesting right like as Unitarian Universalists I know some some of us including you identify as Christian I don't right but so so Easter Sunday feels a little tricky sometimes right like how to sort of preach that from a Unitarian Universalist perspective honoring the experience of Christians etc but it but you're right that Good Friday kind of uh operates on a level past Christian or non-Christian right because it is it's about despair and death and those very human things that nothing, not even the resurrection erases, right? Um, and I actually, so like the stations, you know, we can, we can talk about those for a minute if you want, but my, my doctoral work was on the stations of the cross, right? Like I've written a book about this. Uh, and so like, I, yeah, I find that piece of it, the Good Friday piece, right, is sort of so let's let's talk about Good Friday a little bit, right? Because we just we just talked about Thursday. So if we pick the story back up, right? Good Friday is the like gets condemned to death, has to you know walk his way, right? Yeah, Good Friday is a bad bad day, <laughs> right? So I mean, there's um, I mean there are so many interesting pieces of it, and it's right. And there have been so many books written about, I'd love to read yours actually, about all the things that, that are happening on this day. But essentially he's condemned, but he's not, you know, he's condemned by the Roman authorities in a really kind of half-hearted way. Like they didn't really want to get involved, right? We were just saying earlier that Pilate's like, oh, maybe Herod can take care of that. And Herod's like, yeah, send him back to Pilate because I don't really want to get into it. <laughs> and there is this, um, like, we're not entirely sure what he's guilty of here. And is it really worth death? It seems extreme. Let's, you know, we will, but we're going to embarrass him for you. We're going to beat him. We're going to, you know, we'll do we'll take some of this on and then maybe you all will realize that this is sort of absurd and then puts it up for a vote, right? Like, here are three guys, you know, <laughs> what do you think we should do? And they're like, kill them all. So, so it really goes back to the Jews, right? Like who's going to condemn them? Who's gonna condemn this man really? And what is it he really has done? And it's really, I mean, you can do such a fascinating psychological treatise on, and how we treat our own versus how we treat someone else, you know, a, a tribe that is other and a tribe that is us and how, what we do. I find this in liberal circles a lot when liberals argue with each other around language and around, I think, is 
is this really the argument? Like, this is what we need to be talking about? Isn't there a world of hurt that we should be focusing on? But, but we tend to fight with each other rather than, and that's what was happening. And after all the torture and all the humiliation and all of that, and then they nail him to a tree where he dies slowly for three hours while his mother and the women, it's really the women who love him and his brother, because P.S. he had a brother, he had a few, but <laughs> just, just by the way, and the Bible wasn't in, like, wasn't pretending that wasn't true. It was just, that happened later. But but then his mother and his brother and his like, and Mary Magdalene, his, they're there and they're just sobbing. I mean, can you imagine watching the man you love, watching your son bleeding to death in horrific pain for hours, just baking out in the sun until someone really takes pity on him. Or one of the Roman soldiers and cuts him open so that he'll die faster because he's dying so slowly. Right? It's, and it's awful. It's awful. And he and he's praying. He's asking God, you know, why, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. And they take him down. And it is the lowest point, right? That those three hours of the crucifixion and the death and just it doesn't get more sad. Yeah. Yeah. And they take him down, right? I mean, if you um our history, right, we call this the deposition, right? Mm -hmm. The deposition of Christ. They bring him down and get to tend to his body, right? They get sort of special, special allowance to take him down, tend to his body, and lay him in the tomb. And the big Yep. Um and then they grieve. Yeah. Right. Then they sort of do the human thing, right? The very human thing, right? Right. They scatter. Which is interesting too to me that they they're sort of different groups that just kind of go they're not as connected. They don't really become reconnected until Sunday. But see, it makes so much sense, right? Because if he was the thing that held them together, right. right? He was the center of their wheel and then he's gone. So what now, right? There's right. no clarity about what any of it means um, until Sunday. Right. And then it's the women, the women go back. And I remember arguing with a priest about this once. He said to me, he said to us, he was teaching why women can't be ordained. And he wasn't like completely on the side of not ordaining women, but he was like, but these are, you know, the facts. And, and he said, well, but Jesus appeared to the men. And I was like, oh, first of all, <laughs> can we talk about that? Because no, he appears three times. Once there are women, once it's two unidentified people who could easily have been women. And then once it's to the men, like just to be clear. But also, like, they are, the women are literally the ones to first share the good news, right? Like right. they're the ones, if we want to do like gospel is good news, they're the ones who are first like, hey, he's not here anymore. And an angel told us he's been resurrected. Like, so really they're the first gospel spreaders, you know? Yeah. So the women go, they, they, go tell his friends and then Jesus shows up in the upper room. We always talk about the upper room, which is really because the animals live downstairs in the build in the 
building, so they would be upstairs. And Jesus shows where they're all mourning, right? His friends, the women are mourning, the the those on the road to Emmaus are, are mourning, telling the story, the upper room, they're mourning. And Jesus comes, and his basic message is actually that whole death thing didn't take. <laughs> it turns out that there's more to the story. And they celebrate, and then he's with them for another 40 days, telling them again all the things that he had been telling them for the last three years, and that in some way they were hearing in an even bigger, yeah. and, you know, because now he's dead. So, <laughs> so you got to listen more closely because he's dead now. Um, what's interesting, though, right, and we were sort of talking about this a little bit earlier, that um, this notion of like death didn't really take and one day it won't take for you either but but in truth it doesn't it doesn't actually doesn't change the reality of human finitude as we understand it in our human like capacity to understand right like it it changes some some imagined end right where there's a second coming and we rise and whatever but that like in our actual day-to-day -day lives, it doesn't necessarily like liberate us from death or free us. I say that and then I want to back, I want to walk that back a little bit because I guess what it does do is it liberates and frees from the idea that that's the end, right? Like it it liberates human imagination to think that there's something past my physical death, right? That something else will happen one day to me and to my corporeality, right? Like, so I'm, I'm maybe I'm liberated from my own human understanding or like, limit. I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, there's so many different theologies at this point, right? So one of them, one of them is the like, you know, Eve ate the apple, we needed to be redeemed. It was only gonna take, you know, you needed the blood to make that happen. I, I don't I don't even want to spend any time on it because it's still not my theology and it's totally absurd. We can talk about it another time. <laughs> but then there's the idea that that the story reflects back to us our very human experience of of what really happens in life, right? That that things that there is this death that happens in our lives, real death and and metaphorical death. And the idea, right, that Jesus went to hell and then came back, that that is, um, that reflects or mirrors for us something that we all experience over and you know, over again, maybe not many, many, many times in a lifetime, but, but more than a few times where, where we feel dead. I remember this woman talking about the death of her son and, and the years of depression. And then at some point, she found her own hand reaching to care for a plant. And in that realized she was coming back to life. That there are ways that we, we go through these incredibly painful times and we come back to life. Yeah, so this I buy, right? I buy the sort of metaphorical, um, metaphorical death and metaphorical resurrection. And, and really what I would, the way I would talk about that is second chances, redemption, right? That, that what, it, what really the story is telling us is things can get horrific and there's a way back 
or there can be, right, a way back. Um, and it's an interesting, you know, it's the sort of the, the notion of um, transformation of, of possibility, right, of, of, and this is why for me the harrowing of hell is actually probably the most interesting part like the Friday stuff is the most like really human and like sink your teeth into actually feeling what it is to be human but then the harrowing of hell to me is like the most theologically interesting actually because Jesus goes down and he's like I'm going to save you people who were righteous and you're coming with me while I get back in and it's a really interesting there's like a whole lot to be said right there but um but that idea of like the descent right it's the dark night of the soul it's there's so many ways that people talk about this through time right and it's not only in christian contexts right but like sort of what it is to hit rock bottom right and then find a way forward um yeah i buy and, and in history we tell the story i mean there are so many and i think of like the myth of anana or that we even Persephone right, going down to hell and coming back up like this is part of what it means to be human and the Christian story it gives us characters and personalities and makes it very human and it ends with such hope this idea of it, it is all going to be okay it is truly horrible and then it's going to be okay that the impossible is possible, that love doesn't die, that we can keep coming back to life. And, and even more than that for me is after the 40 days, Jesus is gone, the, the real resurrection of the community, that this community of people that, that it feels to me more like the disciples were resurrected, that they were in this, they were very depressed and sad and horrified by what had happened and even their own behavior. And, and then they came back and they started creating these Christian communities centered on love, centered on sharing, centered on equity and equality and, and a really new vision for what the world could be. That to me is the hope of Easter. It's this, it is going to be okay. We're going to make this okay. There is more here. The, the dream, the miracle, is that we can embody something we couldn't have imagined before this. I think what's really interesting, right, is if we if we stop taking it literally, right? I mean, not that not that Unitarian Universalists tend to take the Jesus story literally, but when we stop taking it literally, there's a series of really human applications, right? You're you're lifting up sort of what does it mean to have the community recohere, lift lift itself up, become something, a force of amazing good, right, until it gets corrupted by institutionalization, and that's a whole other, you know, series of chats, but there's also this piece that's about the way you spoke about watching Jesus die, right, and the grief, right, there's also a piece here about what it means to heal from grieving, right, and I think I told you the story once of how my oldest child, you know, kids phase in and out of wondering about death, right, and the question was, but how will I feel when like when you die, he was talking to me, how will I feel when you die? And how will I ever be okay? Right? How will I ever be okay again? And, and it's exactly that, like, there is this way forward out of these human, you know, sort of terrible things. Um, and that maybe what then the story is about is, you know, if we sort of think about as Unitarian Universalists, if you think about Jesus as divine in the same way that we are all divine, 
right? So, so God as human, humans as God, that there's something about that piece that's love, that's eternal, right? That the pieces of us that are divine are eternal somehow, right? The stories, the memories, the love, the, that like maybe that's the sort of nugget is like, there are ways that eternal life is real and it may not be bodily resurrection, right? But it might be the fabric of the connections we make together. It might be the love that we leave or the love that we show. And that those are the things by their eternality that sort of define that more than human thing that lasts forever and we might call divine. You know, it's occurring to me that we're telling this story, that's really what we've been doing, but we never really dug deep into all the many theologies here. Like, and I, I'm wondering, actually, if we should do part two. Next week, we should talk about the many theologies opened up this week about redemption, about death, about all of these things. Yeah, we could totally do that. Can I tell you one quick story? Just because um, you said that thing about Eve, right? And we're kind of like, we're going to push that to the side. So out of nowhere the other day, because my kids have been reading the Brick Bible, which is this Bible where the images are all made out of Legos. It's amazing. And he goes, I've been thinking about the Adam and Eve story. I was like, all right. And he goes, so Eve is what made humans intelligent, right? He's like, Eve eating the apple is what gave them knowledge. So why isn't that like celebrated and an awesome thing? And why aren't snakes like the best animal ever? And I was like, mini theologian in the making, but this is the point, right? There are so many ways to see these stories. And we could talk a little bit about the Gnostic gospels too, right? Like there's so many, because even back then in the time of Jesus, there were so many ways that people understood what Jesus's life meant and how it changed everything or didn't, right? Um, and it's just that one happened to win out. Doesn't even necessarily mean it was the right one, right? Um, so yeah, let's totally talk more about Christian theology. I think that's what we should do next week. And I'm realizing our time is up, but I think there should be part two next week. Yeah, I'm done. Have a happy Easter. You too. Have a happy Easter. Thank you. I'll see you next Bye. week. Bye.